Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one judicial page of Talmud a day. You know, usually when people speak of the Talmud of being too legalistic, they don't mean it as a compliment. They mean argumentative, petty, all too happy to abandon the bigger picture in favor of the thousand pesky little details that make up legal cases, but that never really inspire even a single person to go marching in the streets for some greater cause. But today, in Yevamot, pages 90, 91, and 92, because we're catching up here from having taken a day off for Shavuot, the Talmud delivers a fiery defense of this very way of thinking of the law as a majestic tool for making the world a bit more perfect. Have a listen. The Gemara adds, and Rabbi Eliezer also maintains that the ruling of the court is an error, as it is taught in a Baraita that Rabbi Eliezer says, if a woman married by permission of the court and it later turned out that her husband was alive, let the law pierce the mountain i.e. the matter must be fully investigated. If it turns out that the ruling of the court is incorrect, it is nullified and she brings a choice sin offering. Granted, if you say that it is an error, it is due to that reason that she must bring an offering. However, if you say it is a ruling, why does she bring an offering? It is the court that should be liable to bring an offering for its incorrect ruling. Let the law pierce the mountain. Hallelujah. The Talmud today is telling us that not even nature's sturdiest construct ought to stand before the might and the tenacity of our inquiry in an effort to guarantee justice for all. Let us then celebrate justice and the men and the women who continue to commit themselves to this crucial Jewish virtue. Today, I'm thinking of one man in particular. 106 years ago, this week, Louis Brandeis became the first Jew to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. And remarkably, 12 years and one day later, on June 5th, 1928, he delivered a dissenting opinion that is still celebrated as one of the greatest bits of reflections on justice. It's also, sadly and painfully, one that remains unbelievably, exceedingly relevant to us today. So because we still believe that the law must always pierce the mountain, I'd like to take a little detour from the stuff we usually do here in Take One and read you Justice Brandeis's opinion almost in full. The case, Olmsted versus the United States, revolved around the question of whether or not the government could wiretap private telephone conversations without judicial approval, and whether or not the conversations obtained thereby could be used in court, or would such a method violate the defendant's rights provided by the Fourth and Fifth Amendments? No problemo, wrote Chief Justice and former President Taft, representing the majority of the court. Wiretapping, he wrote, just means eh, listening in at a conversation. The amendment, he went on, does not forbid what was done here. There was no searching. There was no seizure. The evidence was secured by the use of the sense of hearing, and that only. There was no entry of the houses or offices of the defendants. Enter Louis Brandeis. 
These days, when we're under constant surveillance, from the federal government down to our social media network moguls, listened to by our series and our Alexas, subject to a never-ending and ever-expanding invasion of privacy, most of us don't even begin to understand. It behooves us to take a few minutes, take a deep breath, and listen to Justice Brandeis. I abbreviated a bit here and there, but not much. So here, nearly in full, is his dissenting opinion, one of the greatest meditations ever recorded on privacy, liberty, and democracy. The defendants, writes Justice Brandeis, were convicted of conspiring to violate the National Prohibition Act. Before any of the persons now charged had been arrested or indicted, the telephones, by means of which they habitually communicated with one another and with others, had been tapped by federal officers. To this end, alignment of long experience in wiretapping was employed on behalf of the government and at its expense. He tapped eight telephones, some in the homes of the persons charged, some in their offices. Acting on behalf of the government and in their official capacity, at least six other prohibition agents listened over the tapped wires and reported the messages taken. Their operations extended over a period of nearly five months. The typewritten record of the notes of conversations overheard occupies 775 typewritten pages. By objections seasonably made and persistently renewed, the defendants objected to the admission of the evidence obtained by wiretapping on the ground that the government's wiretapping constituted an unreasonable search and seizure in violation of the Fourth Amendment and that the use as evidence of the conversations overheard compelled the defendants to be witnesses against themselves in violation of the Fifth Amendment. The government makes no attempt to defend the methods employed by its officers. Indeed, it concedes that if wiretapping can be deemed a search and seizure within the Fourth Amendment, such wiretapping, as was practiced in the case at bar, was an unreasonable search and seizure, and that the evidence thus obtained was inadmissible. But it relies on the language of the amendment, and it claims that the protection given thereby cannot properly be held to include a telephone conversation. We must never forget, said Mr. Chief Justice Marshall in McCulloch v. Maryland, that it is a constitution we are expounding. Since then, this court has repeatedly sustained the exercise of power by Congress under various clauses of that instrument over objects of which the fathers could not have dreamed. We have likewise held that general limitations on the powers of government, like those embodied in the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, do not forbid the United States or the states from meeting modern conditions by regulations which, quote, a century ago or even half a century ago, probably would have been rejected as arbitrary and oppressive, end quote. Clauses guaranteeing to the individual protection against specific abuses of power must have a similar capacity of adaptation to a changing world. It was with reference to such a clause that this court said in Weems versus United States, legislation, both statutory and constitutional, is enacted, it is true, from an experience of evils. But its general language should not, therefore, be necessarily confined to the form that evil had therefore taken. Time works changes, brings into existence new conditions and purposes. Therefore, a principle to be vital must be capable of wider application than the mischief 
which gave it birth. This is peculiarly true of constitutions. They are not ephemeral enactments designed to meet passing occasions. They are, to use the words of Chief Justice Marshall, designed to approach immortality as nearly as human institutions can approach it. The future is their care and provision for events of good and bad tendencies of which no prophecy can be made. In the application of a constitution, therefore, our contemplation cannot be only of what has been, but of what may be. Under any rule, a constitution would, indeed, be as easy of application as it would be deficient in efficacy and power. Its general principles would have little value and be converted by precedent into impotent and lifeless formulas. Rights declared in words might be lost in reality. When the Fourth and Fifth Amendments were adopted, quote, the form that evil had therefore taken, end quote, had been necessarily simple. Force and violence were then the only means known to man by which a government could directly affect self-incrimination. It could compel the individual to testify, a compulsion affected, if need be, by torture. It could secure possession of his papers and other articles incident to his private life, a seizure affected, if need be, by breaking an entry. Protection against such invasion of the sanctities of a man's home and the privacies of his life was provided in the Fourth and Fifth Amendments by specific language. But time works, changes, brings into existence new conditions and purposes. Subtler and more far-reaching means of invading privacy have become available to the government. Discovery and invention have made it possible for the government by means far more effective than stretching upon the rack to obtain disclosure in court of what is whispered in the closet. Moreover, in the application of a constitution, our contemplation cannot be only of what has been, but of what may be. The progress of science in furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. Ways may some day be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court, and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Advances in the psychic and related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs, thoughts, and emotions. That places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer, was said by James Otis, of much lesser intrusions than these. To Lord Camden, a far slighter intrusion seemed subversive of all the comforts of society. Can it be that the Constitution affords no protection against such invasions of individual security? A sufficient answer is found in Boyd versus United States, a case that will be remembered as long as civil liberty lives in the United States. This court there reviewed the history that lay behind the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. We said with reference to Lord Camden's judgment in Entick v. Carrington that the principles laid down in this opinion affect the very essence of constitutional liberty and security. They reach further than the concrete form of the case there before the court with its adventitious circumstances. They apply to all invasions on the part of the government and its employees of the sanctities of a man's home and the privacies of life. It is not 
the breaking of his doors and the rummaging of his drawers that constitutes the essence of the offense, but it is the invasion of his indefeasible right of personal security, personal liberty, and private property where that right has never been forfeited by his conviction of some public offense. It is the invasion of the sacred right which underlies and constitutes the essence of Lord Camden's judgment. Breaking into a house and opening boxes and drawers are circumstances of aggravation, but any forcible and compulsory extortion of a man's own testimony or of his private papers to be used as evidence of a crime or to forfeit his goods is within the condemnation of that judgment. In this regard, the Fourth and Fifth Amendments run almost into each other. The protection guaranteed by the amendments is much broader in scope. The makers of our Constitution undertook to secure conditions favorable to the pursuit of happiness. They recognized the significance of man's spiritual nature, of his feelings, and of his intellect. They knew that only a part of the pain, pleasure, and satisfactions of life are to be found in material things. They sought to protect Americans in their beliefs, their thoughts, their emotions, and their sensations. They conferred, as against the government, the right to be let alone, the most comprehensive of rights, and the right most valued by civilized men. To protect that right, every unjustifiable intrusion by the government upon the privacy of the individual, whatever the means employed, must be deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment and the use as evidence in a criminal proceeding of facts ascertained by such intrusion must be deemed a violation of the Fifth. Applying the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, the established rule of construction, the defendant's objections to the evidence obtained by wiretapping must, in my opinion, be sustained. It is, of course, immaterial where the physical connection with the telephone wires leading into the defendant's premises was made. And it is also immaterial that the intrusion was in aid of law enforcement. Experience should teach us to be most on our guard to protect liberty when the government's purposes are beneficent. Men born to freedom are naturally alert to repel invasion of their liberty by evil-minded rulers. The greatest danger to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning, but without understanding. Will this court, by sustaining the judgment below, sanction such conduct on the part of the executive? The governing principle has long been settled. It is that a court will not redress a wrong when he who invokes its aid has unclean hands. The maxim of unclean hands comes from courts of equity, but the principle prevails also in courts of law. Its common application is in civil actions between private parties. Where the government is the actor, the reasons for applying it are even more persuasive. Where the remedies invoked are those of the criminal law, the reasons are compelling. The door of a court is not barred because the plaintiff has committed a crime. The confirmed criminal is as much entitled to redress as his most virtuous fellow citizen. No record of crime, however long, makes one an outlaw. The court's aid is denied only when he who seeks it has violated the law in connection with the very transaction as to which he seeks legal redress. Then, aid is denied despite the defendant's wrong. It is denied in order to maintain respect for law. In order is to promote confidence in the administration of justice. In order to preserve the judicial process from contamination. The rule is one. 
not of action, but of inaction. It is sometimes spoken of as a rule of substantive law, but it extends to matters of procedure as well. A defense may be waived. It is waived when not pleaded, but the objection that the plaintiff comes with unclean hands will be taken by the court itself. It will be taken despite the wish to the contrary of all the parties to the litigation. The court protects itself. Decency, security, and liberty alike demand that government officials shall be subjected to the same rules of conduct that are commands to the citizen. In a government of laws, existence of the government will be imperiled if it fails to observe the law scrupulously. Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher. For good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. Crime is contagious. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. It invites anarchy. To declare that in the administration of the criminal law, the end justifies the means. To declare that the government may commit crimes in order to secure the conviction of a private criminal would bring terrible retribution. Against that pernicious doctrine, this court should resolutely set its face. And all I have to add to that is Amen Silla. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay and Quinn Waller. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Mark Oppenheimer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic and we will see you again soon.